um, and uh, uh, spent some time uh, focusing on each of the commandments over um, that 10, 11 weeks um, as we dealt with the commandments. Now we're kind of back into taking a little bit larger uh, chunks. Um, Exodus chapter 21 uh, verses 1 to 11. Uh, and again, it's our practice to stand when we read God's word. So if you're able, uh, would you stand with me? Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall br um, bring him to the door of, or the doorposts and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as, a male, as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for her, his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself... He shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, as we come to words that we must admit trouble us at best. Uh, would you teach us? Would you grow us? Uh, in our love for Christ, for it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Um, you know, anytime, anytime you write laws, uh, anytime there's, there's somebody that, that writes laws, um, or you have a, a constitution or whatever, when laws are written uh, and you give them to the people, well, sooner or later, somebody's got to interpret those laws. Somebody's got to explain to you how they apply in different settings. In our world today, that's usually left up to the court system. So basically, you've got your constitution, you've got your bill of rights, you've got the laws that the, the legislative body has written, but then it's usually up to the judicial system to figure out how are we going to apply these in these sort of settings and contexts. It's not uncommon for us to have some sort of law, legal question, and the answer to be, well, it depends. That's kind of where we are in the book of Exodus. The law has been given, the Ten Commandments have been given, but now we're at a place where we're going, okay, well, what does that look like in the day-to-day, -day, everyday life of Israel as they're venturing towards the promised land? What will this look like in regular life? It's one thing to give the laws. It's another thing to then understand 
how to use them and apply them in the daily life of the Israelites. And so the next several chapters really is a series of case laws. We're going to be reading the case laws that expound, expand, explain how the Ten Commandments work in regular life. Now, a couple of, couple of sort of observations to make even on the front end. I mentioned that in our system, it's usually up to, it's not the lawmakers that interpret them. It's the law interpreters. It's a completely different group of people in our world. The legislative body writes laws. The judicial branch interprets laws. And so it's two completely different groups of people. That's not how it works for Israel. And that's important for us to recognize. The, 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 Infinitely holy and perfect lawgiver is also serving as the law interpreter and the law applier. This is God's word to us. This is God speaking to Israel and saying, now listen, Moses, let me tell you how these Ten Commandments I just gave you. Let me give you some examples of how they're going to work in your life, in in the, the everyday existence of, of Israel, the nation of Israel, as you're you know, in the wilderness and, and heading to the promised land, and for that matter, once you get there. Why does that matter? Why is that important? Why is it important for us to recognize that the lawgiver is also serving as the law interpreter and law applier? And, and it's this, it's at least this. We're going to be reading things that at best sound sketchy to us. We just read words like slave and sell your daughter and buy a Hebrew. And we need to recognize before anything at all, before we even begin to understand and figure out and apply, we need to understand this isn't us writing it's God writing and if that's true and and if he's infinitely holy he can't make a mistake which means that if I have trouble with it the problem is with me and not with him and so from right off the bat just in in reading and in studying and in planning for this sermon, I'm frequently left going, well, this, this, it's his word and not mine. And therefore, if I struggle, if I have difficulty, then the problem is with me and not with him. And this passage is a perfect example because for you and me, 21st century Americans, we hear the word slave and buy and sell daughter and, and sell self. And we think Nothing like what's intended here. Our experience, our past, our history are all affecting, tainting how we read and understand this passage. These laws written about servitude, about servants among the Israelites are written to people who literally... okay. This is where we lose the sense of time flow in our life. Um, Three months ago, three and a half months ago now, 
we started the Ten Commandments. Which means it's been, and I should have looked, I didn't. Some of you may, I don't is there anybody would have this knowledge right away? Like, we've been in Exodus for a while. The Israelites have been out of Egypt for a while. But in their life, it's been about two months. In other words, while Exodus 18, 17, 18, 19 isn't fresh on our minds, it is on theirs. They've only just been freed as slaves for 400 years in Egypt. Four centuries they spent as servants, as slaves in Egypt. And so that life is fresh on their minds. It's recent in their experience. And so they hear this and go, oh, that's right. We were servants. We're going to understand this in that sort of setting. What was their experience like in Egypt? Well, we could look back at Exodus 1. And we could find that Pharaoh imposed taskmasters over the Israelites. And we're told in Exodus 1 that they afflicted them with heavy burdens and he made their lives bitter with hard service. That's how you and I understand slavery. Difficult taskmasters making life hard and bitter. We could, we could look back more recent than that to their time right before leaving Egypt and, and find that they had to make bricks without straw. Remember, the state actually provided straw for the longest time. And then once Moses started going to Pharaoh and saying, look, we're going to leave and go worship God. And Pharaoh said, no, I'm going to make things more difficult for you. I'm going to make it harder. For, I'm not going to make it easier. For, I'm going to make it harder for you. Now, the state's no longer going to provide the straw. You have to go get the straw. Oh, and by the way, we're not changing your brick quota for the day. That's their experience. That's their background. That's their understanding of slavery. It's on the heels of that experience that God gives these laws. These laws about servitude in Israel among the Israelites. But this also is not just a law about clarifying slavery. It's actually an application of the fifth commandment. This is an application of honor your father and your mother. It's an application of that relationship and the fifth commandment. That's why we read the New Testament passage we read. That's why we used the affirmation of faith that we used just a few minutes ago about superiors and inferiors. There are those words again. We don't like those words. We hear those words and we think that superior, we use it. When we use that word, it's superior quality. We mean that this thing is better than that thing. And that thing is not as good as this thing. And so I'm going to buy, I don't know, a car with superior safety records. Not one with an inferior safety record. That's not how it's used here. It's not a statement of quality. It's a statement of relationship, of function, of, of office. 
parents are superior to their children, not because they're better, but because they're in charge of. Children are inferiors to employees are inferior to their bosses, not because they're less quality, not because they know less, not because they have less experience, but because they're the employee and not the boss. It's purely a statement of relationship and function. And so it's in that context that these laws are given. And we're going to see over the next several weeks how various um, commandments apply in a variety of settings as these case laws apply the Ten Commandments to life in Israel. Let me first of all clarify this word slave. It's nothing like 1800 slavery in the United States. It's nothing like the, the chattel slavery that we know, that our experience knows, that cannot possibly be, be defended from Scripture at all. This isn't going and buying foreign people and forcing them to serve you and then treating them like property. This is nothing like that. And it's different in a whole wide array of ways, quite honestly. Let me just point out a few of them. Uh, first of all, this isn't, nobody's being stolen here. Nobody is being kidnapped and forced into slavery. Did you notice the language? If a man sells his daughter as a slave, or if a man buys a Hebrew slave, first of all, you're talking about your brothers and sisters within Israel. These aren't foreigners. These aren't outsiders. These aren't other nationalities. This is only talking about Hebrew to Hebrew. And what you're dealing with is people who owe a debt that they cannot pay. And so they're selling themselves to work to pay off the debt that they owe. They owe, they either are, are too poor or they've been robbed or whatever the case may be. Uh, but they are selling themselves or their child, we'll see this in a second, into servitude to work to pay off the debt that they owe. It's indentured servant. It's not slavery the way you and I know the word slavery. It's fellow Israelites. It's, it's the same. This is family in their context, right? This is this all within the household, so to speak. And so because they can't pay off the debt, they work to pay off the debt through service. Notice, too, it's not permanent. This isn't, hey, you're going to come work for me and I'm going to force you to and you can't go anywhere. It is at most for six years, verse 1. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years and in the seventh he shall go out free. So here the command is six years at most. And what you find later is the year of Jubilee. When the 50th year comes along after seven sevens. If the servant works six months, when the year of Jubilee comes, on, comes along, every slave is set free. It's, you're, at most, you're talking six years, and then he's free to go. The debt is considered paid in full, and you are free to go. Does that sound 
like a pattern you've heard somewhere? That's the fourth commandment. It's the Sabbath principle of six days of labor and one day of rest applied to servitude. Six years of labor and one, and in the seventh year, you're set free. You're done. You're good to go. That your service is over. Your work, your labor for this person is complete. So it's not permanent. It's temporary. It's not foreigners. It's family, household. There's no, um, there's no kidnapping, no man-stealing going on in this. So it's c- completely different from uh, slavery as you and I know it. But I think it's a fair question to ask this. Because this was in our New Testament reading and it's here. The question becomes, does that mean that in God's design, we're supposed to or at least can have servants? And the answer sort of can be answered in part by sometimes God gives laws um, that are given to regulate and restrict Because of man's sinfulness, not because of man's design, not because of God's purpose or design. Think about it like this. Um, Jesus himself will say, will acknowledge that Moses gave divorce laws. Divorce is not supposed to be the pattern. Divorce is not supposed to be normal. Divorce is not part of God's design. The, the point of marriage is that the two shall become one flesh and what God has joined together, let no man put asunder to steal from the marriage vows. And yet, even Jesus acknowledges that, um, that Moses was given divorce laws. Why? Because of our sinfulness. Because the reality is we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. And so sometimes laws are given recognizing that more than God's intent or design. So in a world where debts that are owed can't be paid, uh, they, can't be, they can be paid off by indenturing yourself to the person to whom you owe the debt. Never, I know, I know this was a thing. And you watch enough old period pieces and you realize that debtor's prison was a thing. Has there ever been anything less helpful than debtor's prison? Here's an idea. Somebody owes you that and they can't pay it. So what are you going to do? We're going to throw them in prison. How's that going to solve the problem of the debt that they owe you? It doesn't. It never, you can't, there's, they can't work. They can't make money. They're in prison. We'll throw them in debtor's prison. And somehow or another, that's going to make it all better that they owe me a debt that they can't pay. What if instead they became your servant and worked to pay it off? It's actually more humane It's actually more loving. It's actually more dignified. It's a much more honorable way of dealing with the debt problem than debtor's prison. Whoever thought of that idea. 
That's the slavery we're talking about. That's the context of this servanthood, this slavery. Notice, too, who are these case laws written to protect? The servant, not the master. That flies in the face of everything our experience would tell us. That's that's exact opposite of, of the old South in the U.S. These are all written to protect the servant. That's why we use the affirmation of faith. We use the responsibility, the duties of superiors to inferiors. We didn't even ask the question. We could have. It's in the catechism. We could have asked the duties of inferiors to the superiors. But we didn't ask that question because the context here is... The care and love and protection and provision that masters are supposed to have for their servants. The aim here isn't to say, now servants, here's what you have to do for your master. The aim here is to say, masters, this is what you owe to your servants. In other words... God cares for people in need. God cares for people who are hurting and struggling and who, in this example at least, are most at risk for being abused. It's a picture of God's care for the down and out, the hurting and the unlovely of society, if you will. In fact, there are Actually, stipulations for how the servant can go free. Did you notice verses 2 through 6? Basically, verses 2 through 6, he leaves after six years exactly as he came in. If he comes in single, he goes out single. If he comes in married, he goes out married. If he's given a wife And while a servant, then the wife and any children that she has belong to the master. But even then, there are two ways of solving that problem. For us, we go, hold on, wait, why is that? There are two ways of solving the problem. The first is verses five and six. The servant saying, I love my master. I have a loving and kind and benevolent master. He's been nothing but good and gracious to me. I want to stay. I love my wife. I love my children. And I love my master. And I'm willing to stay. And then you have this ceremony of the the all through the ear and punching a hole in the ear, sort of indicating that he's, he's intending to remain as his master's servant forever. I suppose there are conditions of poverty that would make this more appealing. They, He's basically deciding I can be poor out there and on my own or I can live here with my wife, my children, and this master who loves me and is kind and gracious and cares for me. And so he remains his servant. There's a second way to solve the problem. We won't, in Leviticus 25, there's actually a provision that he can buy his freedom. The servant can buy himself and his wife 
and his children out of servitude. Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh, Jeff, you just, you just made fun of debtor's prison. How's he going to have money to buy his wife and children's freedom? Well, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let me show you something in Deuteronomy chapter 15. There's a little more clarity, a little more information given there that we don't have in Exodus 21. Deuteronomy 15 verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years and the seventh year you shall let him go free. Okay, that sounds familiar. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeems you. Therefore, I command you this day. But if he stays, if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an all and there, there's that. In other words, when this servant goes, he doesn't exactly go as he came. When he came, he came as a debtor. He came owing. When he leaves, he leaves liberally provided for. And did you notice? Flock, he's got a herd, he's got animals. Threshing floor, he's got grain, food, wine press. You're, you're going to give him you're going to give him wine and grain and and sheep, livestock, and when he goes, he's going to go out free. Why? Because that's exactly how Israel came out of Egypt. We're actually in just a few minutes. That's not true. In just a few weeks, I don't know, it just came out that way. In just a few weeks, we're going to watch as God's people give for the building of the tabernacle. And I'll say it again then, so you're getting a, you're getting a free preview, I guess. Gold, silver, wood, scarlet thread, blue core. Where'd they get all that? They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Where'd they get all that? Well, when they left Egypt, they left with all kinds of stuff. And so just as God's people left slavery and when they did, when they left that bondage in Egypt to head towards the promised land, they didn't go empty handed. So too, when this servant is set free, he's not allowed to go empty handed. You're going to bless him because you've been blessed. God says, I've provided for you, so now you provide for him. And not barely, not kinda, not a little bit, liberally. I hope you already have a sense that the job of the master in Exodus 21, the job of the boss in century 21, not the real estate, but in the century we live in, just, is to represent God to those under him. To treat those under him the way 
our perfect, righteous master loves and treats us. Who's set us free from slavery and bondage to sin and blessed us, not kinda, not a little bit, but overwhelmingly so. Who sends us out liberally provided for. You see the care that God has, uh, that God is giving to Hebrew indentured servants among His fellow Israelites. The passage then turns to um, female servants in verses 7 to 11. And admittedly, some of that is even more difficult. Uh, It appears that parents found themselves uh, unable to pay a debt, and so they sold uh, this. In this instance, it's a daughter. Um, But again, don't let 1800s America or 21st century um, sex slave trafficking affect your understanding. This is someone who is going to marry either the master or the master's son. That's why it mentions specifically that she's treated like a wife or like a daughter. That's why verse 10, if he takes another wife to himself, then she actually gets to go free if she is mistreated. In other words, yes, he's selling her into uh, slavery, into servitude, but the aim is this, is this is a betrothal. This is a marriage that's going to happen. She's going to become the wife of the master or the son. And so therefore, she's going to be treated like that. She has all the rights of uh, a wife, of an engaged, a fiance, if you will. In fact, if he changes his mind, if the master changes his mind, she gets to go, she gets to be redeemed. He has no right. And notice verse 8. He's the guilty one. He has broken faith with her. If he changes his mind, if he goes back on the deal, if he changes the agreement after it's already been made, she is protected because he is guilty. See, you and I, because of our history, because of our context, we read this passage, we clench our fists, we grit our teeth, uh, we scowl and, and growl at the word slave in the Bible. If you're trying to do your read through the Bible in a year thing, when you get here, this is you know one of those places where you just kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, I got nothing I don't know. This can't possibly be good. Words buy and sell in relation to people and the word slave. And I just not willing to go to abide by this. You skip, you jump ahead. But let me make a couple of applications from this passage. First is this. Um, This passage is aimed at the superiors in relationships who have the responsibility to protect, to provide for those under their care. It would be, it would be completely foreign uh, to God's economy for people in positions of power and authority to abuse those under their care. 
These laws are written to protect those who are vulnerable, those who are in danger of abuse. God's making laws that apply the Ten Commandments to people in Israel who were vulnerable. The poor, women, and especially a poor woman. You put the two together and you get those who are are most vulnerable in that context. And God is writing laws to protect them, to watch over them. To make sure that they can't be, won't be exploited. And so God begins to to apply the Ten Commandments here in the context of slavery because it was so fresh on their minds and to provide for and protect the poor and needy. Spurgeon, Edwards, one one of them, pretty sure it was one of them. Um, I could be way wrong for all I know. But basically sort of made the observation, there are no little people to God. And this passage shows us that. But there's more. Because this is a picture of a servant who loves his earthly master enough that he would actually be willing to stay as his servant and to work for him to remain there. Why? Well, because the master is good and loving and a benevolent master. You have an infinitely better master. We have Christ as our king, as our ruler, as our governor, as our authority over us, who loves us and cares for us. He's our king. We are his subjects. His rule is perfectly loving and gracious, and it should be our delight to serve him with joy, with gladness, to obey his commands because they're not oppressive, because they're not burdensome, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Are you a subject of Christ? Are you his servant? Have you submitted to his rule? Have you vowed that commitment? To Christ, your perfect, loving master. That yoke is not a hard, difficult thing to bear. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you that, um, that Christ is our redeemer. He has freed us from bondage uh, and slavery to sin to make us his own. That we are now bond servants to Christ, our king and ruler, our master. Would you grant us the grace to see your rule and reign in our lives as the yoke that is easy, the burden that is light. May it be our delight to rejoice in your delight over us. We pray all this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.